Hello, friends, and welcome to a special Labor Day edition of Sustainability Now, right here on your community radio station, Forward Radio, WFMP Louisville. We broadcast from here in the historic Hayburn Building at 106.5 FM and live stream anywhere you are in the world. Maybe you're listening to us from Cincinnati, where our guest is joining us from today. You can listen anytime at forwardradio.org. We also really encourage you to go to that website to become part of this community station. We built it for you. This is radio for the people, by the people. And we would love for you to be some of the people behind the microphones here in the studio or behind the scenes helping make this all possible. And you can click participate anytime at forwardradio.org. Pitch us a show, pitch us a guest on a program, those kinds of things. And hey, uh, it's that time of year. Give for Good Louisville is coming up on September 15th. We want to remind you to support the station. Uh, we can't do this without you. We're all listener-sponsored, so go to forwardradio.org anytime and click donate uh, to become part of the station and help us keep this great community resource going. It's it's so affordable. It only costs $20 a day to keep this whole operation going because of volunteer power, and you can help make that happen at forwardradio.org. Well, my name is Justin Mogg, and I am so pleased to host this program because it gives me an excuse to reach out to folks like our guest today who I might not otherwise have an excuse to talk to. Dr. Amy Townsend Small is joining us from Cincinnati. She is a University of Cincinnati environmental scientist uh, who has uh, been working on an issue of vital importance to Kentucky and then the world, in a sense, through its impact on the climate crisis, which is the issue of abandoned oil and gas wells in our state. That's what we're going to focus on today. I want to welcome Amy to the program. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Justin. Actually, um, I just want to point out right at the top, I am in Kentucky right now. Hey! <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I live in Kentucky, too. All right! Yes. <laughs> That's great. So, proud to be a resident of the Commonwealth. <laughs> All right. That's yeah. great. Well, welcome from Kentucky. It's great yeah. to have you here on the show. Uh, you are uh, a professor of environmental science at University of Cincinnati's College of Arts and Sciences. And, it, and you spent years studying these abandoned or idled oil and gas wells, not just here in Kentucky, but across the country. Um, and the reason we really want to talk about this today is that there's been some recent news, that exciting news, that Kentucky is going to invest $25 million to cap leaking oil and gas wells. Tell us about this. Where does this money come from? Yeah, pretty cool. Um, many across the country are getting money for this as part of the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Excellent. So um, that was passed several months ago um, by Congress and signed by the president. And it's a great thing. And it's going to be part of a a stimulus package. Yeah. So Kentucky is probably not the only state getting these kinds of funds. That's right. Yeah. States across the country are getting them. Wow. And give us a feel. I mean, I know you're not an economist, but tell us, is $25 million to address this issue, like, at all sufficient? Are we talking teeny drop in the bucket or what? It's a start. Okay. It's, it's, not, it's not quite enough, but it'll be a good thing. It'll create jobs across the state, especially in eastern Kentucky, where most of the wells are. And obviously, um, that's part of the state that needs investment right now. Yeah. Um, 
So it's a good thing. Well, and it's especially a good thing for us here in Kentucky because we have a disproportionate number of these sort of derelict uh, oil and gas wells, right? Yeah, that's right. All across Appalachia is where the most, um, they call them orphaned oil and gas wells are. And that's because that's where um, the oil and gas industry started in the middle of the 1800s. So those are the oil and gas wells that are going to be targeted by this infrastructure plan. Wow. Uh, and and this is significant globally because you your studies in just abandoned wells in Texas, uh, and you could talk about the differences between a well in Texas and Kentucky if there are any yep. of significance, but you found that these could be leaking just you know millions of pounds of methane every year, right? Yeah, so some of the wells that we've studied are leaking a lot of methane or natural gas, which is primarily methane. Other wells might be leading to groundwater contamination, or they could be leaking harmful air pollutants, like benzene would be a common one that many people have heard of, or hydrogen sulfide might be something else like the rotten egg smell that can make you sick. So some of those wells that are in Appalachia or West Texas, they can be a harm to people's health. Or if they're leaking natural gas, they could catch on fire. Oh, wow. I hadn't even thought about that danger. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that has happened before. So that's not great (laughs) when that happens. Well, sure. And so are there cases of that of abandoned wells maybe uh, starting wildfires? Um, yeah, I mean, that's not as much of an issue in, in our region okay. because we don't have, like, um, you know, a lot of drought problems. Right. It rains a lot here, obviously. <laughs> um, but in the West, yes, that can happen. Um, and Or it could, if the abandoned well is near a house, you don't want it to catch on fire yeah. because then it could be a safety hazard. Yeah. A house or a school or something like that. Well, since we have some an environmental scientist with us on the line here today, I want to nerd out a little and dive into some details that a normal conversation about climate change or abandoned wells might not touch on. You you said something important, I think, that there is a, is a difference between methane and natural gas. And I tend to gloss over that difference when I'm talking about it, too. But uh, explain to folks what the difference is. And is there a difference then between what comes out of the ground and what reaches you at your house for your furnace or stove? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, when you drill a well, an oil and gas well, or a natural gas well, um, sometimes that well has um, pipeline quality gas. So the natural gas in your house or in your stove, that's about 95% methane. Okay. The gas in a well is not usually that much methane. Usually it has other gases in it, primarily ethane or propane and other carbon gases. And the industry, does the industry try to extract those different gases? Yes, that's right. They have different uses. So they normally take them out at a processing plant, they call it, and they'll take the ethane 
out. And ethane is a primary component of plastic. Right. There's a connection there to the plastics crisis too, right? Yeah. Right. So ethane, they use it to make polyethylene. Mm-hmm. And actually, um, our area of the world is turning into, they call it pol- uh, the, um, a new plastics hub. Yeah. <laughs> because of all the plastic or all of the oil and gas drilling in um, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Ohio, in the northern Appalachian Basin. So let's be clear that it's only because of our reliance on fossil fuels, a heavy reliance on fossil fuels still to this day, even though we have other technologies. It's because of that reliance that we have a glut of plastic, right? A hundred percent. Plastics are made out of oil and gas. Yeah. And this means that there's very little incentive to actually recycle the plastic that we all think we're recycling when we put in a recycling bin, right? Oh, like yeah. there's right. it's economically unviable because there's this glut of eth- of the raw products coming out of the ground to make more plastic virgin plastic, yep. right? Yep, that's right. Yeah, actually I'm teaching a class on that right now. <laughs> Good about, people need to know. Yeah. It's called waste and recycling. Yeah. And it's pretty mind blowing when you really look up at how much since around the 1950s, how much our plastic use has gone up as our fossil fuel production has gone up. Yeah. And I usually recommend a documentary called Plastic Wars, if you've ever seen that. I just saw it, yes. We have you a did? we have a new group in town called Beyond Plastics Louisville uh-huh. and, and they just screen that, yeah. Is is amazing, isn't it? <laughs> it is very eye opening. So yeah. 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 That journalist who made the documentary is she's a hero. <laughs> yeah. She's so good. It's Laura so good. Sullivan from NPR. Uh, yeah, I think yeah, it's freely so- available online. You can find it at Plastic yeah. Wars. We'll put a link yeah. to it in the show notes for the podcast version. Yeah, yeah. you should. It's on PBS. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Online. Oh my God. That is such a good <laughs> such a good documentary. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Well, this is great because we're already stumbling into entangling ourselves in a variety of different environmental impacts associated with this whole industry. And I I do want to take a little more time to frame it up a little bit more. Um, I think, you know, most of our audience understands at a basic level the dangers of burning fossil fuels. Like it's hard to ignore with all the extreme climate events, the flooding in eastern Kentucky and so on, it's hard to ignore that danger. But we don't hear as much about the damage caused just by drilling and mining for things like oil and gas. Not even to talk about coal today, but just oil and gas. So can you give us an overview of what that damage is? Sure, sure. So methane emissions are the second largest contributor to climate change. Burning fossil fuels, which makes CO2, that's the number one contributor to anthropogenic climate change. Methane emissions, which methane is a primary component of natural gas, and the largest anthropogenic contribution of methane emissions is leaking natural gas wells or oil wells. Yeah. Can you explain briefly why methane is so important in the climate change issue? Absolutely. Methane is a more powerful greenhouse gas than CO2. When it's emitted into the atmosphere through natural gas leaks or 
it has a lot of other sources too, but right after it's emitted, it's 86 times more powerful than CO2. Wow. So it warms up the atmosphere very fast. And as I mentioned, these leaking wells are one of the biggest sources of methane that we have on Earth. It's not the only source. Cows are a very big source. <laughs> yeah. Landfills <laughs> uh, are a big source. <laughs> so, but leaking wells are one of the easiest sources that we can fix. Oh, that's good news. That's good news. Yes, it <laughs> it's one of the easiest ones because it's they're leaking and fixing it is like free money for the oil companies. Right. Because it's a product for them. Right. So why wouldn't they fix it, right? Well, th that that's the obvious question. Why do we have so much leakage? Right. I mean, the answer is there's, in the United States alone, just on land, there's one million wells. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> and then there's three million abandoned wells. Oh, wow. Right. Does... So many that we can't check them all. Right. Why do they get abandoned? They're not producing enough oil and gas anymore. So the company just says, mm, I'm not going to deal with that anymore. So financially, it's not worth it anymore. It's not that exactly. there's no more resource available. Sometimes there's not enough. Yeah, essentially, yes. Financially, there's not enough oil and or gas coming out. Wow. Sometimes there's none coming out, but sometimes there's only a tiny bit coming out. So this is a regulated industry, right? The, if they abandon a well, what kind are they supposed regulated. to do? <laughs> <laughs> kind of regulated. <laughs> I mean, it's regulated by the states. Some states regulate it more highly than others. Okay. And you're suggesting that maybe Kentucky's not top of that list in terms of regulating? Or? Um, no. Well, first of all, there's only a couple states that are regulate methane. Okay. There's literally two. And then no Appalachian state, which is where all the very old wells, had regulations in the 1800s. Okay. Like that was way before anybody knew what was going on. Huh. You know, so we didn't know what was going on back then. We still don't know where all those wells are. Oh, no. <laughs> from, from way back then. Uh. So when my students and I go out to find them, there's a lot of bushwhacking machetes poison ivy that kind of thing <laughs> yeah sure <laughs> my, my <laughs> guest today has been out stomping in the fields looking for abandoned and idled oil and gas wells around the country and right here in kentucky her name is dr amy townsend small from the university of cincinnati so great to have an environmental scientist on the line in the virtual studio with me today talking about this really important issue that is in a it's in a sense it's actually good news in the whole climate change discussion because like you said this is one of the more easily addressable issues like we can take action to cap these wells right so tell us about that process what what does capping a well do is it is it a, a perfect solution for in perpetuity or what would be the responsible way to handle one of these wells when it we're done with it yeah they call it plugging and it's not a perfect solution what they do is they cut the well casing off underground and they seal it with cement and then they plug it with a cement filler. And then they make sure it's not leaking anymore. And then usually there's some kind of like 
surface restoration to try to get the surface to look like hopefully what it looked like before. Right. (laughs) And there are incidents where the plug will fail, but most of the time it does work. So the gas that's leaking out of these is coming up through a, a metal casing. It's not escaping anywhere else. And then it gets to the surface and in one that wasn't plugged, where does the leakage happen? Because isn't it still connected to a pipeline? Sometimes there could be leaks in the pipeline. Oh. But usually what we've found is these wells are very old and the well head itself is the source of the leak. I see. Yeah, it starts to get rusty because it's exposed to the elements, right? Exactly. <laughs> you can just That's imagine. Right. Yeah, they're not designed to last for 100 plus years. Okay. And I imagine typically this isn't like, you know, a geyser type situation, uh, right? This is a slow leak. Yeah, the geyser ones are very rare. Right. But they do happen. Yeah, wow. Yeah. And could could people on the surface, if they live nearby, even... No, would they? Would there be a way for them to detect, or because these are invisible gases, right? Sometimes they're so uh, leaky you can hear oh, wow. the hissing, or you could smell it. So in those cases, you would know. Yeah, but most of the time, no. Okay, and the methane itself you can't smell, but when we get right. it in our homes, they've added some of that rotten egg smell, that sulfur, right? That's right. Yes, that's right. Yeah, so that's one of the things that makes it dangerous is it's odorless. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you can't tell if it's leaking. Yeah. So, okay, so there's the the climate threat, the air quality Mm -hmm. threat from the mining. Are there other environmental or social economic impacts of the mining industry that we should be aware of? Sure, absolutely. So natural gas is not only methane. As I mentioned, it contains other gases. Some of them are a direct hazard to health. So if you live near one of these gases, one of these leaking wells, it could be doing damage to your health. And that is the case for people in eastern Kentucky and even in some urban areas. Yeah. Like- wow. Los Angeles, California has a lot of abandoned and idle wells. That's right. I've seen the oil rigs, the, the derricks going in yeah. downtown LA. It's it's bizarre. Yeah, sometimes you see them in movies. Yeah. And most of the time, to be honest, they're in poor and minority communities. Yeah. yeah. Right. Unfortunately, that's an environmental justice issue. Yeah. So you can't smell it, but you would be exposed to these harmful chemicals. And if you live there for a long time, you're going to be chronically exposed to them. So that's a very bad situation. Sometimes the wells can leak contaminated water to the surface. Yes. That's not good. (laughs) (laughs) And that also creates problems for fixing it. If they're leaking water or oil, they're more expensive to fix. There are examples of that in Appalachia and Texas. So if you live in a place without city water, that's going to contaminate your water source too. Yeah. What what about the impacts on the surface um, in order to get to create these wells to do they deforest and pave roads mm-hmm. and all of that in, in yeah, order to start for drilling new, for new development that's they definitely have to do that yeah for abandoned wells most of the time they're very overgrown 
Yeah. But yeah, for new fracking, it's very common to see that they have to build roads and it disrupts the community a lot, yeah. for sure. So let's talk about the connection between coal and oil and natural gas. Uh, we often yeah. find them together, right? So maybe give us a brief geological explanation of where does this stuff come from and why is it co-located? <laughs> sure, sure. So sometimes, like in Appalachia, they're in the same place. Um, all fossil fuels are made of essentially the same thing, which is old dead plants. And coal is often made out of old woody plants, whereas oil especially is made out of old algae, like marine plants. Mm -hmm. And natural gas can come from either source. Most of the shale gas that's being extracted today comes from these oil formations that are in very, very deep underground rock. And the old conventional wells that are being targeted for plugging in the infrastructure bill are surface wells that were closer to the surface. I usually use the example of the Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> it's kind of an outdated reference for most of my students, but that was oil and gas that had seeped to the surface from these very deep underground shale reserves right. into like sandstone or limestone reservoirs. And now those are all depleted. Yeah. So all those depleted reservoirs are now old conventional wells that need to be remediated. So this old plant material, you know, which was yeah. at, at the surface at the time, gets buried yes. through geologic processes over yeah. literally eons, like time scales that humans can't even imagine. Yeah, usually hundreds of millions of years. <laughs> hundreds of millions of years. Exactly. Gets put in a in an anaerobic environment with no oxygen. And that's why we get things like methane produced rather than carbon dioxide, which is what exactly. we would see on the surface. Right. And so this, that's why we find methane in a landfill. It's also a place with no oxygen. Yes, exactly. And the same as a cow stomach. Yes. <laughs> cow stomach is exactly like a landfill or a swamp and um, they eat plants and then um, there's no oxygen, and instead of CO2 coming out, methane comes out. And the fact that that carbon in fossil fuel formations, the coal and natural gas, is so old, that's why it's contributing to climate change. It's being burned at a rate hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times faster than it was buried underground. Exactly. If humans operated at a geologic time scale, <laughs> it'd be yeah. fine. <laughs> but <Yeah>. we don't. <laughs> <It's only. laughs> right. And so there's this new term, you've already touched on it, that we've started hearing in the last couple decades when I was growing up and never heard this term about fracking, which is fracturing the rock to extract sort of the last remaining bits of recoverable oil and gas, right? T tell us about that process and why it's so destructive. Yeah, it's it's disruptive in a couple of ways. It's very expensive. So um, as opposed to maybe when you and I were growing up when oil and, when gasoline prices were a lot lower um, in the one dollar per gallon. Oh range, yeah, I remember those days. Something like that. <laughs> um, in order to drill for oil now, they have to drill thousands of feet under the surface 
to get to shale that has oil in it. And then they have to actually not only drill so deep, they have to make a horizontal drill. And oh, then wow. they have to fracture the shale. Um, so all of those things are expensive. Mm. And then they have to do all the refining and transporting of the oil from where it's fracked and drilled to where people live. So all of those things add up to very high oil prices. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) it's a lot more expensive and it's just more disruptive to the surface than these shallow conventional wells. And more of a threat to groundwater. Uh, That's right. So they do the fracturing with a mixture of water, sand, and chemicals. And some of these chemicals can be harmful to the environment and people, especially if it spills or leaks. And some of the chemicals are not disclosed to the communities where the fracking is going on. And when they are disclosed, some of them are very scary. Wow. (laughs) So that is... um, a huge concern for communities where fracking is going on. And the impacts extend beyond that. I mean, in order to get this frack sand, it has to be a very yeah. particular type of sand that they're looking for. It's not That's just right. any old sand you find anywhere. So they are mining very special places like Wisconsin. I, I took a train trip out west. We went right by the frack sand piles. And yeah. this is impacting ecosystems even way beyond where the fracking is happening. That's true. Yeah. The, it just has a much bigger environmental footprint. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's not just fracking. We're, we're also doing deep water offshore drilling. Oh, boy. Yeah. And so people may remember the Deepwater Horizon incident. Right. 2010. Yeah. One of the reasons that was so hard to fix was because it was in deeper water in the ocean than we've ever had to drill before. Wow. And that's going to keep going. Wow. Because we have an insatiable appetite for oil. Yeah. You know, as long as we keep driving cars and flying on airplanes, we will need oil. So we really need to critically examine our transportation fuel. (laughs) Yeah, and I would argue this even translates into electricity because more and more of our electricity is now switching over from coal generation. Thank goodness, because coal was really the dirtiest way to to make electricity. But they're transitioning to a cleaner option, which is natural gas, which does have a lower climate impact relative to coal. But it's uh, it's still very destructive in all of these ways we've been talking about. So I get a little nervous. Methane emissions. Yeah. So I get a little nervous when people start like putting lots of attention and say electrifying vehicles right here in Louisville. Well, basically you're switching to a natural gas powered car, right? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. Well, I mean, Kentucky and Ohio, we still use a lot of coal. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we haven't transitioned all the way to natural gas yet. <laughs> yeah. Wow. But yes, we, we're transitioning from coal to gas. 
not to renewables. I'm speaking today with Dr. Amy Townsend Small from the University of Cincinnati, though she's joining us from her home in Kentucky across the river. She's an environmental yeah. scientist uh, at UC's College of Arts and Sciences, and she has been doing some really important work studying oil and gas industry and these abandoned wells and all of the potential climate impacts of uh, not addressing those. The exciting news that's recently come out is that through the infrastructure bill, Kentucky is going to be able to invest. $25 million in capping some of these long leaking oil and gas wells. Uh, that, so that's, this is actually one climate problem that we can more quickly solve than some of the others. Uh, so it's really exciting news in a way, but still an ongoing problem that we, we need to keep our eyes on. Uh, and this problem is not just about Kentucky or Texas, right? This problem is global. Uh, if, if you would tell us about the issue, the problem situation globally in terms of methane, you mentioned some of these other sources. I'm worried about, say, melting of permafrost, which holds a yeah. lot of methane, right? Yes, that's a very big concern. So methane has a lot of anthropogenic sources, which we mentioned, or human sources. And then there are also a lot of natural sources of methane. So you mentioned one of them, which is permafrost soils and lakes in the Arctic. And many of these natural sources can be enhanced in a warming world. And that's what a lot of people are very worried about. Because as I mentioned, even a small increase in methane emissions can have a very big impact on our global temperatures because it has such a high global warming potential so yes and they call that a positive feedback (laughs) right slippery slope (laughs) yeah it's a slippery slope that's right so you emit a little bit of methane it it emits more methane gets emitted through natural feedbacks it heats up the earth (laughs) yeah yeah not good very it's, hard to turn that ship around, right? This and is it's hard to predict. Yes, because yes. We only have one Earth to experiment with. Yes, this is a really important point, and, and I'm glad we're spending a minute on it because I think the way humans tend to address problems is we kind of, yeah, we see it maybe it's somewhere on the horizon, but we got a lot of important things right in front of our nose right now that we got to deal with. So maybe sure. we can put that one off. Climate change, eh, that might be decades away. I'm going to wait mm-hmm. to address it. We can't, we don't have the luxury of doing that with climate change because of these positive feedback loops. Once we start start down that road, it may be impossible to turn around. Exactly. And positive feedback loops are what cause strengthening storms, exactly like what's happening in Kentucky now. More intense tornadoes, more intense rainstorms. And unfortunately, just as scientists have predicted, they disproportionately affect poor people. Mm hmm. Yeah, and I do want to talk about your environmental justice work, which I know is, is right here in Louisville, too. But let me just wrap up my, my thoughts about how this is also global, and then we'll, we'll, we'll end on the local story, right? Okay. Um, it's not just a global problem, that it's also a global solution, right? The only way we can address this is through local action that is coordinated globally, right? Uh, and you have been involved in that work. Let's talk about the Paris Accord, if we, if we okay. could. Uh, 
in fact, you just finished a year of service with the Department of State as a climate advisor. Tell us about that. Yeah, that was an amazing experience. I'm really, I was really proud to serve at the State Department. And the United States just rejoined the Paris Agreement. And so I was happy to be able to be part of that. And so um, as part of the Paris Agreement, all signatory countries submit what they call a nationally determined contribution. And that is every country's plan to reduce emissions of greenhouse gases. And so what I was working on is helping all the countries in the region I worked on, which is the Middle East and North Africa, strengthen their nationally determined contributions. Huh. Wow. The reason I worked on that region is because I primarily work on the oil and gas industry, and those are mostly oil and gas producing countries. So they, I'm sure, have the same issues of abandoned wells, uh, methane leakage in North Africa and the Middle East as well, right? Right. I mean, in general, they're just the United States is an oil and gas producing country, and that's a big part of our economy. And and all of those countries, most of them are as well. So yeah. it's like, how are you going to do this while also not shooting your economy in the foot kind yeah. of a thing? <laughs> and so let's just take a moment to talk about why what the Paris Accord is. You mentioned generally yeah. this is from the Obama era, right? Uh, and mm-hmm. why is it so vital that we all sort of get on the same page globally? Exactly. That's a great question. So the goal of the Paris Accord is to keep global temperatures from rising to above two degrees Celsius, above, I guess they call it pre-industrial levels. Now keep in mind, we're around 1.2 degrees above pre-industrial levels now. And things are not awesome now. (laughs) We're having like a lot of problems. Right. But this (laughs) two degrees is thought of as like a point of no return. That's sort of a tipping point, right? I believe the text says ideally we'll keep temperatures below 1.5 degrees. Right. So that's the ideal goal. And again, this is a global average mean in Celsius. Yeah. It's we're not talking about one or two degrees Fahrenheit in here here in Louisville, Kentucky. We are talking about it's radical Celsius. change to our planet. Yes, and it's Celsius, not Fahrenheit. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, so, um, in general, the idea is that by 2030, countries will about half their greenhouse gas emissions relative to 2005 levels and by 2050 they will reach what they call net zero um, greenhouse gas emissions yeah and that's very challenging so the biden administration or the united states ndc has a 50 percent reduction by 2030 goal and i believe the whatever the bill in congress that passed and the president signed it. I can't remember the or the IRA they call it, right? The Inflation, Inflation Reduction, Reduction yeah. Act. <laughs> <laughs> that has enough money to almost get it there, yeah. and it will rely on states and cities to make up the gap. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Addressing this, getting to reducing your emissions by fifty percent. This isn't like 
Somebody in Washington, D.C. moving a dial, right? That's not no. how this happens, unfortunately. It's not about right. flipping a switch. This is really complex, and it involves many different sectors of society and the economy. And we all have to cooperate if Absolutely. we want to achieve these goals, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. The main ways will be switching to renewable electricity, and then reducing fossil fuel use and transportation. Those are our main emission sources. Very, very challenging. And we're going to need some renewable fuels, too, not just electricity, <laughs> right? right? Especially for transportation. Yeah. You know, for, for batteries. So that's a big challenge. And I think it'll take a lot of innovation um, with regard to, like, recycling of minerals or lithium. Oh, yeah. So right now we just dispose of these batteries, I think. Yeah. Yeah. We could we could make that a more circular economy, too. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That'd be better. Well, th this has been awesome. Thank you for giving us the global perspective. We started yeah. out talking about Kentucky oil and wells. Let's come back to yeah. Kentucky and talk sure. about, right here in Louisville, some of the environmental yeah. justice work that you've been engaged in related to air toxins from chemical plants right down the road from us here in Rubbertown. Yeah, so I worked on a community-engaged project in West Louisville um, related to all the chemical plants in the Rubbertown area. And um, that was a very, very, very interesting experience. And I don't know how many people even in Kentucky know about all the chemical plants in that area. But they call it Rubber Town because they used to make tires in the World War II area. And now those all of those factories have expanded just to become petrochemical companies. So they're along the river because all the feedstock chemicals come from Appalachia, um, the oil and gas precursors. Um, and they use those to make... Who even knows what? <laughs> PFAS, Anything. right? Forever yeah. chemicals. Yeah. <laughs> like paints. Right. Chemicals. Yeah. Anything. And um, those, those companies have a lot of um, releases of, of anything, chemicals from their smokestacks and affects the surrounding community, which is predominantly African-American. So I worked with that community group on, on trying to get air quality monitoring of air toxics, which um, was a huge challenge. And it's related to the work you do when you're investigating some of these abandoned wells, right? Is this a similar sort mm -hmm. of air monitoring? Yeah, but... Um, the, in this case, the city had actually uh, had promised to get air quality monitoring up and running, but was not able to. So, and they were working with federal EPA. Um, so I was trying to advocate on behalf of the community. Yeah, excellent. Uh, such yeah. important work. Uh, and yeah, I mean, air is something we all share. Uh, but right. what they always say about pollution is uh, the solution is dilution, right? So when you exactly. when you live right there at the epicenter of the releases, exactly. the impacts on your health are particularly extreme. And that's true for both the people who live on the fence line, but also the workers at these plants, right? That's true. Yeah, exactly. 
and again, we're talking about, you know, the most marginalized communities we have in Kentucky mm-hmm. are, are, you know, when you look at the demographics of the workers and the people who live nearby, it's, you know, overrepresented, obviously, by poor people, but also people of color, uh, mm-hmm. single mothers, uh, handicapped mm-hmm. folks like, you know, they're they're taking the brunt of all of these impacts. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's not just true for local air quality, but it's true when we look at the impacts of the global climate crisis right that's right exactly that's right so people that like if there was a chemical spill like you said they may be disabled they may not have a car they may not be able to get out you know yeah well thank you for doing that environmental justice work right here in louisville thank you for looking into uh how we can address methane leaks right here in kentucky uh, but what's next for you? You're not giving up. You're going to be involved in the next international climate conference. I hope so. Yeah, it's in Egypt. In Egypt later this fall, right? Yes. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to be t- returning to North Africa to uh, help address this global crisis. Yeah, yeah. Pretty <laughs> exciting. Yeah, just a lot of preparations underway right now. I can imagine. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, this has been so enriching. Thank you so much for taking this deep dive into some literal rabbit oh. holes of, of so abandoned wells. Yes. It's been great talking to you. My guest has been Dr. Amy Townsend Small from the University of Cincinnati. Uh, do you have a website or an online presence where people could learn more if they want to keep in touch um, with I you? I have a Twitter. Look for yeah. her on Twitter. Uh, what's yes. your handle? <laughs> I think it's A Towns and Small. All right. All one word. All right. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well yeah. for the podcast version of this program. Oh, thank you so much, Amy. This has been wonderful. Yeah, it's been awesome. All right. Stay tuned, everybody. Coming up in just a second, I've got your community action calendar with all kinds of ideas about how you can get engaged in sustainability right now. So stay tuned. Down by the waterside, take our time. Down by the waterside, got no worries and no worries. Down by the waterside, good Lord. Gonna set them free, set me free, set me free, free. and we're rolling on the river. Ooh, child, she's an easy giver, yeah, and we're diving in the lake. Swimming in the sea, I said
Got no worries and no hurries Down by the waterside Good alone We gonna set them Down to the river Oh, and sit and look at you And all oh, I really want to say yeah, yeah. It's a beautiful day And are back here on a special Labor Day edition of Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg. Hope you've been having a great long weekend and are looking forward to a productive week for sustainability. This could be it, friends. Get your pencils sharpened and your calendars out. Get ready to take action after this long weekend for sustainability. And it all starts on Tuesday, September 6th with the Plummet Summit at 6.15 out at the Nazareth Retreat Center down in Nazareth, Kentucky, near Bardstown. The Central and Western Kentucky Citizens Climate Lobby Group and former guests on this program, Maggie Hettinger and Carmel Bowman, invite you out for a night of gaming for good on Tuesday. They believe you know more than you think, and you care more than you know, and your experience matters, and they want you to come explore where do we fit in this new world. Come play with us as we figure it out in a friendly, fun gathering. Plummet, P-L-U-M-M-M-I-T, stands for Planet Leaders Using Mighty Minds to Mitigate Increasing Temperatures, and it's a new interactive game in which players explore causes of and needed actions to mitigate climate change. Teams gain knowledge and political PowerPoints. Then, with a climate model simulator from MIT, design a plan to keep the planet's temperatures from rising above 1.5 degrees Celsius. Bring a friend or make a friend. There will be snacks and prizes as any good game night should have. You can get all the details at facebook.com slash Nazareth Retreat Center. Again, that's Tuesday, 6.15 to 8 p.m. down in Nazareth, Kentucky, near Bardstown. Also on Tuesday, September 6th, from 3.30 to 8, it's the final Zoning Matters Conversations with the City Planner this week at the Portland branch of the Louisville Free Public Library. Again, these conversations are part of the ongoing Land Development Code reform. It's an equity-focused approach to revise the Land Development Code or our zoning rules here in Louisville with an ink intention to increase the quality of life by reducing the concentration of environmental hazards near housing. Joel Dock from Louisville Metro's Office of Planning and Design Services will be available to answer questions about zoning and discuss the ongoing Land Development Code Reform Project. 
and they want to hear about your neighborhood and discuss what the reform means for you. So if you're in the Portland area, come on out to the Portland branch of the Louisville Free Public Library on Tuesday from 3.30 to 8. And then also this week, in a related note, it'll be another in the planning for middle housing workshops. Louisville's affording housing crisis and urban sprawl are being fueled by the so-called missing middle in our local housing stock, which is overrepresented by detached single-family homes and mid-rise apartments with little in between. While Louisville Metro Planning and Design Services would like to build a middle housing neighborhood with you. At this workshop, participants will work together in small groups to build a middle housing neighborhood using Lego bricks. The bricks will represent different types of housing, including detached homes, duplexes, and cottage courts. A park, bus stop, and neighborhood services are also included to help build out your neighborhood, and they invite you to build at upcoming workshops coming up on Wednesday, September 7th at 6 p.m. in the Newburgh Library in the Community Meeting Room at 4800 Exeter Avenue in Newburgh, and the last one will be Tuesday, September 13th at 6 p.m. in the Iroquois Library. These workshops are being offered as part of the ongoing Land Development Code reform, and more information and to view a map of events and meetings, go to louisvilleky.gov slash LDC reform. Now, Wednesday, September 7th, Olmsted Parks begins their park steward training. Volunteers are essential to keeping Louisville's Olmsted Parks beautiful. Whether one day a week or several times a year, individuals and groups can join the effort to restore and enhance Louisville's Olmsted Parks. Park steward volunteers help restore woodlands and landscape areas, lead volunteer projects, and assist with community outreach at events in the Olmsted Parks. So whatever your level of interest, you can help make a neighborhood park beautiful and welcoming for all. Olmsted Parks Conservancy Park stewards serve as official ambassadors and play an integral role in helping our organization enhance, restore, and protect the 17 Olmsted parks and six parkways, with duties ranging from helping to remove invasive plants in designated areas, leading volunteer groups, or managing a booth at community events. There's an opportunity for every interest and skill set. Park stewards volunteer an average of four hours a month. Through the Park Steward Training Program, you'll attend a series of lectures and hikes to learn more about park history, horticultural techniques, plant identification, and woodlands management, all while meeting amazing new people and getting the opportunity to exercise ownership over these green spaces that you already care about. And the training starts this week on Wednesday, September 7th. So to learn more and to get registered, go to olmsteadparks.org and click on Get Involved. Now, Saturday, September 10th, it's a one-day-only Louisville Grows Fall Seeds and Start Sale from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. at the Healthy House Greenhouse at 1639 Portland Avenue. You can keep your garden growing longer this fall. All proceeds from the Seeds and Start Sale go directly to support a sustainable food system in Louisville by benefiting community gardens through Louisville Grows Community Garden Grants Program. They have a 
wide variety of fall crops available. You can see them all at seedsandstarts.org, all spelled out. But just a quick teaser, they got Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, Chinese cabbage, collards, endive, kales of all kinds, lettuce, mustard, greens, pak choy, radish, rutabaga, Swiss chard, and turnips. So get your starts on Saturday, September 10th from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Go to seedsandstarts.org to learn more. Also on Saturday, September 10th, out at Bernheim Arboretum and Research Forest, they are doing a hike and workshop on foraging for useful wild plants. From 9.30 a.m. to noon, our wild plants can reveal history, mystery, mythology, and ecology. When we take time to recognize our green companions and begin learning their stories, we often discover how much our own stories are intertwined, not only with those plants, but with other people and creatures. So on Saturday, you can join Ren Smith, Bernheim's interpretive programs manager, with over 40 years of experience sharing her passion for wild plants plants as we forage for these deeper connections. Your neighborhood stroll may never be the same again. Registration for the Foraging for Useful Wild Plants program and payment is due by 4 p.m. on Friday. Again, you can register and learn more at bernheim.org. Saturday, September 10th is also the Louisville Maker Fair, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. at the University of Louisville's Student Activities Center right at the clock tower. After three years away, we're incredibly excited to announce that the Louisville Maker Fair is back this year. We hope you will join us to celebrate all the amazing things our local maker community has to offer. As you may recall, we here at Forward Radio had a blast bringing you voices of the creative, crafty, and constructive community when we hosted a booth and live broadcast from the 2019 Maker Fair at UofL. Well, we are coming back strong this year and look forward to bringing you the inside story over the airwaves and hope we'll see you at our booth in the Student Activity Center ballroom for a live demo of how to make radio and podcasts with us. Come and meet fellow volunteers and share your programming ideas with us. You can get all the details at louisville.makerfair.com and that's spelled M-A-K-E-R-F-A-I-R-E. All right, Sunday is also an opportunity to get engaged. On September 11th, it's the next Bright Side Sweep and Sip, starting this time at 11.30 a.m. to 1 p.m. at Against the Grain Brewing, 401 East Main Street. Join us for a fun monthly community cleanup. Bring your friends, family, and colleagues to enjoy the cooler weather and help us clean up the downtown area and keep litter out of our waterways. Don't forget to stay for the refreshing brews afterwards. You can get more information at louisvilleky.gov government slash bright side. And we'll see you Sunday, 1130 to 1 at Against the Grain Brewing, 401 East Main Street. Also Sunday, September 11th in the evening, it's the Big Table. Yes, it's back too. From 5 to 7 p.m. out at Iroquois Park, magical things happen when people get together for a meal. They eat, they talk, they connect. In a time with many opposing points of view and division, we need real dialogue and respectful spaces to come together as neighbors. This is what we're hoping to create with the Big Table. At the event, people will be organized into 
tables of eight, some of whom will be unfamiliar. Volunteers will help facilitate conversation among the group. We'll share stories about the food we bring, about our lives, and about ourselves. There will be no central stage or entertainment schedule. The only goal is to engage with each other and leave as friends rather than strangers. Organizers are looking for 250 table hosts and 25 volunteers. The magic of this event is in the interaction at the table, and table hosts are the key to that magic. As a table host, you will fill the essential role of welcoming participants, directing them to a table, and guiding the conversation that occurs. Do not be intimidated. We have designed fun and simple processes for helping strangers connect and tell stories. You can learn more and sign up to volunteer or simply attend at facebook.com slash the big table 502 it is the biggest potluck in town go to facebook.com slash the big table 502 and come on out sunday september 11th from 5 to 7 p.m out at iroquois park down by the amphitheater also sunday september 11th it's the next kentucky and a beekeepers association beekeeping workshop this one's going to be on winter bee biology prep and care and it's taking place in person on sunday at 6 p.m at the louisville nature center advanced beekeeper laura augustine will present on winter bee biology prep and care to help you get your bees ready for winter survival We'll be covering the importance of healthy winter bees, uh, the biology of winter bees, colony life cycle in Kentucky, on preparation for success over the winter, on reasons for failures, I've had many over the winter, on mite prevention, on feeding, and on moisture control. All the essential things to think about if you're keeping bees this winter. You can learn more at kyannabees.com. And don't miss out on Sunday, September 11th at 6 p.m. at the Louisville Nature Center. And lastly, I want to let you know that the Jefferson County Soil and Water Conservation District is thrilled to support the new weeds ordinance, so-called weeds ordinance, with a new program supporting native gardens. It's called the Native Landscaping Cost Share Program, and it will offer funding for the establishment of new or expanded uh, native plant, pollinator, and rain gardens. This funding will be allocated annually to approved residents, community centers, schools, organizations and businesses the application for this program is now open already have a garden and don't need funding well you can also apply to get a free sign design designated designating your garden as an official pollinator area and to help educate others on the importance of native plants learn more and apply at jeffcd.org that's j-e-f-f-c-d.org and look for native plant cost share under programs. And that's all the time we have for today here on Sustainability Now. I want to thank you so, so much for tuning in. I hope you all have a great short Labor Day week. And I look forward to being back in your ears again in one week's time. Be well, my friends. Ooh, la, la.